Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Dr. Aaron Rock has served as pastor, professor, chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping others to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to talk about state-funded universal income and whether it is equitable or evil. On this episode, we're going to answer some questions that have been submitted to by our listeners. That'll be at the end of the show. So if you want to ask questions, feel free to send them into ASK, ask at harvestwindsor.ca. And we're going to also tackle the issue of universal basic income. As many of you will know, Canada is looking to pass legislation for UBI and other countries have or are discussing this as well. So we have this question of, is this equitable or evil? We're going to be tackling today. So Aaron, maybe you can give our listeners an overview of this current proposed legislation in Canada and what it even is. Sure thing. Well, we have uh, a bill right now that's in the Senate. It's called Bill S-233. And um, this bill is, uh, is entitled An Act to Develop a National Framework for a Guaranteed Livable Basic Income. And essentially, I've read the bill. It's not very long. It's obviously in English and in French. I read it in English because I can't read French very well. <laughs> uh, even though I know the other day I was pretending to read it in French to the staff here. But anyway, I digress. Basically, the the bill is intended to provide uh, a state-funded, that's important, a state-funded basic income for anybody who's over the age of 17 and in the section about who qualifies, it's not just Canadian citizens. It's also available to temporary workers, which I, I find I found that one the strangest because a temporary worker, by definition, is someone who's come from another country to work temporarily in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why you would be offering them a universal basic income when they're here specifically to work. But nevertheless, the legislation proposes to cover citizens, temporary workers, Anybody who's a resident of Canada, they also mention uh, members of the Indigenous community. Again, that's kind of a bit of a political stunt in my viewpoint, because if you're a Canadian, you're a Canadian, you'd be covered under this. And I'm not sure what the point would be to focus on a specific group within Canada. Nevertheless, that's the wording. And also refugees. So in short, everybody. Now, the language, and let me just read a little statement here from the legislation the language basically says that it's enough to, quote, ensure the respect, dignity, and security of all persons in Canada, end quote. That is a rather interesting statement because I'm not sure logically what the connection is between providing someone with an annual salary from the state and ensuring respect, dignity, and security. People should be ensured respect, dignity, and security through just laws, regardless of whether you're paying their wages or not. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's I think, a bit of smoke and mirrors there, in my view, where they're trying to present this universal basic income as some sort of a, a moral obligation that the country has to the potential recipients. I'm going to argue in a little bit that it's actually not moral and not biblical to provide people with a guaranteed livable income. That's not the way God has designed uh economics and we just need to sort of call it out. 
I also want to remind people without jumping into a completely different category that in our country, we don't actually guarantee the dignity, respect, and security of all persons, especially when it comes to the pre-born. About 85,000 Canadian babies are put to death in the womb every year. It's a moral travesty. I know our church is praying and fasting uh, every Thursday uh, this month to end abortion in Canada and around the world. And we also have a lot of people in the senior elderly category who are very vulnerable to the potential of euthanasia because they're portrayed as a bit of a burden to society. So there is some smoke and mirrors. There's some discrepancies here. What do you have to do to get this state-funded universal income? Well, nothing. The act, as it's written, actually ensures that you do not need to participate in any education, training, or work to get it. So let's suppose that someone said, look, there are some folks that can't find employment. We're going to provide them with a basic income. But as a prerequisite to getting it, they have to go through a training course or while they're receiving it, they have to put in X number of community service hours. They have to be in school, et cetera. Okay, that would still be questionable, but at least it would make a little bit more sense Mm -hmm. in that it's a temporary measure to get people that are struggling into permanent employment. But the way this legislation is written, it's sort of the opposite. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of ensure that if the legislation passes, the minister would then be instructed to create a system that would ensure that you don't have to work, pursue employment, or get any training in order to 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 have this universal basic income. So it really de-incentivizes any desire that a person would have to to better themselves unless they already obviously there's there's different kinds of people, right? Some people are very very content just to live off the system if they have enough money to pay their cell phone bill, their cable television, to buy a few packs of smokes and a 2-4 on the weekends and their rent they don't really care. They're fine with that. There's other people that are motivated to to better themselves. Well, the sad thing is increasingly we've created a system where there's not a lot of incentive to work because the government wants to pay your way. And then when you do work and you find gainful employment, the amount of taxes that are taken off to support programs like this and others are rather astonishing. Uh There definitely is an agenda. This is really important for the listener to understand. There is an agenda attached to Bill S-233 that almost word for word draws from the language of the World Economic Forum. We've covered that on a previous episode, the Klaus Schwab World Economic Forum, which Christopher Freeland, our deputy prime minister, is on the trusteeship board of. And in this act... If you say, well, is there an agenda behind this? Yes. Let me read another line from the act. It says, quote, while facilitating the transition to an economy that responds to the climate crisis and other current major challenges, end quote. That is World Economic Forum lingo. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, hey, let's provide everyone with a livable salary, courtesy of the state which is actually courtesy of the taxpayer, but let's tie this into these other woke ideologies that are getting a lot of attention 
namely the climate crisis and other current major challenges, who identifies those? Well, the World Economic Forum <laughs> identifies such yeah. things. The liberal government identifies such things. And uh, so that's that's kind of an overview of the legislation that's being promoted. It really is a state-funded salary that you would receive for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, these are available. These documents are available online. So if you type it in, you can find this bill S233 uh, on the Internet and read it for yourself. I know it's common, uh, especially in Canada, for governments to offer money to citizens uh, to create social systems that provide subsidies, for example. Um, so just broadly speaking, does that kind of thing concern you, Aaron? It does. I mean, historically, a lot of these basic, not necessarily the social programs we have today, but the idea of collecting funds from a broad constituency and then giving it to people who have an identifiable need, that's a Christian idea. In Acts 6, they had basically a soup kitchen. It was uh, designed primarily to meet the needs of believers, but These ideas have been secularized and taken on by the state and then, of course, expanded. And then the sad thing is they're tied very much into voting. So when we have elections coming up in a jurisdiction, all of a sudden the politicians start dangling the carrot. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what we're going to do in the current province that we're in. The uh, government of the province that wants to get reelected is offered to delete license plate stickers. You know, you'll save 120 bucks a year. By the way, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I think license plate stickers is the most ridiculous thing ever. You have a license plate. Why am I putting a sticker on it every year? It just makes no sense. It's just a money grab. But what I don't like is when that's used to buy votes. And a lot of these systems that historically had Christian roots to them have been usurped by secular authorities that are looking to get votes. Nevertheless, to directly answer your question, I I am concerned about the government overseeing these kinds of social systems fundamentally because I don't see them as having that authority delegated to them by God. I don't see anywhere in scripture that it's the responsibility of Caesar to provide social welfare to the citizenry. Uh, the, the, the state has a, a, an interest in defending its territory. The state has an interest in establishing courts and dealing with criminal behavior. These are things that are assigned to them by, by God. But when they take working people's money and then redistribute it to people who aren't working in order to get votes, there's a an ethical problem there. Just think about that. Essentially, you know, when it comes to to economics, a lot of people are very obtuse to basic economics. So if you, if you boil economics down to its most basic principle, you're always asking the question, who pays for it? Who pays for state funded universal basic income? The people that are working, the state doesn't actually have its own money. Unfortunately, the state, can print money that's essentially worth nothing, which causes, costs massive inflation. That happened after World War I as a result of the sanctions that were put on Germany. And the German people were devastated. So 
when Hitler and his boys came to power, they just started printing all kinds of money and it, it, it looked great. Like people love this. There's, there's all kinds of money floating around, but it became worthless. There's stories of people burning money that was just absolutely worthless. So the, but technically speaking, the state doesn't have its own money. So whenever the state says, whenever an elected official says, Hey, this is what we're going to give you. Now that's different than we're going to delete mm-hmm. a fee. We're going to delete emissions requirements for vehicles. We're going to delete license plate stickers. But when a state says we're going to, if you vote for us, we're going to give you A, B, or C, all they're saying to the people who will receive these funds is we are going to take money from those of you that work and we're going to use your money to buy the votes of people that don't work. Clearly, there's there's an ethical problem with that. Mm-hmm. So it flies in the face of logic. It's frankly unethical. And it also violates, you know, basic biblical teachings on, on economics and how we should handle our money. Yeah. I know, uh, for myself, the last few few years, the concept of thinking Christianly about all of life has really taken hold. And I know you've said that Joe boot, our friend over at the Ezra Institute has said that we want to think Christianly and think Christianly about economics. And I think a lot of people, especially Canadians grow up in a system that as we start talking about these things, they're going to start realizing, oh, wait, there's actually a whole lot of things in our system that might not be biblical and modeling. Right. Um, and so as we talk about this idea of universal basic income, it's raising complex questions about economics and that stuff. So can you help our listeners uh, go to some key texts of scripture as to what you'd want them to hear? Like, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, I want to I want to identify or acknowledge first of all that there are people that are quote unquote professional economics that study this stuff and know the, the nitty gritty details. But we want to be careful not to participate in sort of the pillarization of society where we've we just rely purely upon the professional economist to tell us how money should be spent. Everybody uh, listening to this podcast has the capacity to develop a foundational view of economics based upon the written word of God. The written word of God has a lot to say about money. And if we follow God's patterns for in rules on how to handle money, we'll flourish. Obviously the Bible isn't getting into things like the, the intricacies of the tax code. You know, the what's the best date every year that you have to submit your income tax forms. It's not getting into that, but it provides the framework upon which Nations and individuals can be successful in terms of how they handle their money. And fundamental to any discussion about economics is the creational requirement, the creational command, the biblical command to work. So in this world, the Bible's very clear. We are called to work six days and rest on the seventh. We're not commanded to work five days and rest two. We're not commanded to work three days. We're not commanded to work one day. We're not commanded to retire at 55 and then do nothing. We're commanded to work six days and to rest on the seventh. That is God's pattern. That's God's purpose. That's God's way for us to live out our lives. So the Bible says in Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall rest. 
So it's very clear that we are called to be working beings. Work is a redemptive thing. It's not a drag. It's not meant to be a, a terrible, horrifying experience. Obviously, there's thorns and thistles that need to be uprooted. It's not always going to be fun, but we need to have a positive, redemptive view of work. I, I would often tell my kids when they were younger, complaining about doing household chores or complaining about having to go to work, I'd say that don't, don't talk that way. Don't think that way. You're creating within your mind a negative view of work. Have a positive view of work. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel tired and some, some days aren't going to be as fun as others, but approach your, your work with a positive outlook. It, it's so much better and it's kind of a biblical ideal. We're called to work and we're going to work for years and years and years over the course of our short lives. And at, at, at one point in the future, we'll be able to rest for all of eternity. But right now we work. So the Bible's very clear on this. We're called to work. And then in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, for some crazy reason, even some social justice Christians have this idea that that's a, a horrible thing to say to someone. If they're unemployed and they're desperate for a loaf of bread and you say to them, have you been looking for a job? No. Well, then I'm not giving you a loaf of bread or maybe I'll give you one today, but you're not getting one tomorrow. What? How dare you? Like, it's like we have this weird idea that somehow we're responsible to provide soup kitchens for able-bodied 25-year-old men. It's ridiculous. In fact, a lot of the people that are part of these social security systems, they're not people that are disabled. They're not widows over the age of 60. They're not people that have been wounded in battle. They're able-bodied people that simply don't want to work. Hmm. And so they live off the system. You know, we've talked to young people over the course of our ministry journey. It's like, are you looking for a job? No, I'm not looking for a job. I'm waiting for EI. It's not biblical. Go get a job. Go get go go work by the sweat of your brow. There's even biblical uh, boundaries put in place for who qualifies for assistance from the church. In First Timothy chapter five verse nine, it says, "Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years old, having been the wife of one husband." So, if you're within that working age uh, group, you don't even qualify for assistance from your own church. Your the the biblical pattern is for human beings to work six days and rest on the seventh. Now, it doesn't go into details like how many hours do I need to work uh, per day? Do I get a half an hour for lunch? How many breaks do I get? It doesn't go into those details. But the pattern is we are working beings. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, even before sin entered in the world. Before sin entered into the world, we were put in the garden to tend the garden, not to sit in a cloud plucking on a harp. We are working beings. Now, work has been corrupted, and there's there's going to be sinful uh, influences upon our employment, upon employers, upon employees. That's why the Bible has something to say to slaves and masters in terms of how they conduct themselves in a broken system. But the idea of us staying at home, finishing another degree on someone else's dime is not biblical and it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Quick question. In the new heavens, new earth, will there be work? 
Well, we'll be working at worship. We'll, we'll be working at honoring and glorifying the Lord. And in terms of the kind of work world that we live in now, no, that won't exist. But it's not just going to be some sort of a check your mind, check out, just sort of stare at the beach, watch the birds fly by kind of an kind of an existence. Mm. Fundamentally, we'll be working at worship. And even if for some reason there's there's opportunity. So, so work, of course, is sometimes in response to decay. So there, we're not going to be pulling weeds. We're not going to be, yeah. uh, we're, not, we're not going to be sweeping the streets because those are all evidences of decay. But in some mysterious way, there'll be a positive, worshipful kind of working experience that we'll in, we, will, hmm. we will engage in. So we will work. And then the second building block block of biblical economics is that when you when a person has a need, so having reminded people that we're all called to work, if someone is in a, a, a crazy situation in life where they physically can't work, so they're 95 years old, they're five years old, they they're wounded in battle, they have a physical disability. Whose responsibility is it to provide for such a person? It's not the state's responsibility. The state is never assigned the responsibility to pay your way or my way through life. That's not the responsibility of the state. And frankly, when they do it, they're terrible at it. Because again, they do it for the sake of getting a vote. Hmm. Or they do it for the sake of building a bigger government. You know, the, the government's like the biggest employer in Canada, from what I understand. And- if the people that are in government are making decisions about social programs, obviously it's within their best interest to expand the system in order to have job security. Hmm. So we, the state is more than willing to take all of your tax dollars and hire someone within the state to do every single job that you are otherwise responsible to do. So there's an ethical problem here in our, in statism, there's an ethical problem and that the state gets larger and larger and larger. They have all the controls. They decide how the money's spent and they keep going back to the same well, the working taxpayer and demanding money, right? In order to do jobs that they were never assigned by God to do. So the Bible has some teaching on this in first Timothy chapter five in the eighth verse, it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he has designed, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the Christian is first and foremost responsible to provide for his or her own household. So for example, if you and I were working men and we had an elderly parent or a disabled brother and that person came to us and said, oh, you know, I can't afford groceries this month. I'm, I'm disabled. I'm elderly. We don't say, well, go talk to the church. <laughs> no, right. the church isn't the universal provider of income either. It's the responsibility of your household, first and foremost, to provide for the needs of their relatives. I'm not talking about the, the needs of a lazy cousin that doesn't want to work. We're talking about legitimate needs. Mm-hmm. And there's also a command there in, in the same chapter, 1 Timothy 5, verse 11, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, it says, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the church 
we'll get into this in a moment, the church does have a responsibility to care for the widows and orphans, but only if the immediate family cannot provide for such folks. Mm. So that's fundamental. And then the third building block here is that if a person is in need, again, you don't, you don't set up UBIs, you don't set up universal basic incomes paid for by working taxpayers. Then it goes to the church. So in Acts 6, there was um, a bit of a fight there between the, the Hellenistic Jews, meaning the Greek Jews and the Hebraic Jews. So we have uh, people coming out of, we have Jewish people that formed the nucleus of the early church. Some of them had come out of, you know, Greek speaking countries because they were part of the diaspora. Some of them were from Israel proper. And there was a bit of a fight as to who was going to take care of the widows and the daily distribution of food. And so they, they appointed the, the early servants of the church to do that. But what we see there in the midst of this discrepancy is that the church was engaged in the daily distribution of food to whom? Um, well, to the disciples. So this, this, this is a, a point that's often missed on Christians who have a heart for the poor. And it's the idea that the, our first line of responsibility is to actually meet the needs of the poor within the community of faith, mm-hmm. within the community of faith. We've had young people want to go on mission trips. They're like, where are you going? I want to go to Haiti or whatever. And I want to meet the needs of the poor. It's like, well, are you meeting the needs of the poor in your own church first? Uh, what? Never even heard about that. Never thought about it. So our, our fundamental responsibility is to actually meet the needs within the household of faith. We're told in Galatians 6, verse 10, if you have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our priority is to meet the needs of fellow believers. Mm-hmm. Again, you don't hear that preached very often. I think most people believe that the church kind of is fine and then there's people outside the church that gospel ministry is all about meeting the needs of people outside the church. No, your, your first fruits need to go to meeting the needs of people that are part of the household of faith. So Chris, a state can charge taxes. They're granted the authority to charge taxes in, in Romans 13 for duties that have been assigned to the state. It's within the best interest of a state to defend its borders we, we're nationalists. We're not globalists. We've read Genesis. We know about the Tower of Babel. We're not into neo-Babelism. We believe that God has designed nation states, and it's within the purview of a state's authority to defend its own borders. So if it's collecting taxes for that, so be it. It's within the best interest of a state if they've been given the sword to look oversee public justice, to punish the evildoer, to reward the righteous— it makes sense. You would collect taxes to have functioning courts and a functioning legal system and sufficient number of police officers and military and all that sort of thing to provide for national security and to adjudicate on matters of criminal justice. When it comes to roads, public infrastructure, it makes sense that a state would collect collect taxes to uh, use uh, to use towards the, the construction of public infrastructure projects. That that makes sense. That's kind of within the boundaries of, of a state. Not everybody's going to have their own roads built. But a statist government wants to control everything. And we've actually seen it 
the ugliness of this in recent years, but it's been around for our entire lifetimes. Statism has been around since before you and I were born mm -hmm. where they want to control everything. They want to collect money for literally every harebrained idea. We're going to collect money for universal basic income. <laughs> so now we're going to collect money in order to pay everyone's wages. It doesn't want to work. It's ridiculous. The, the thing about money is everything boils down to money in many respects. That's why it's called the root of all kinds of evil in the scriptures. The manipulative power of money, the controlling power of money is, is incredible to think about. Even in the last couple of years, money has been the primary means of leveraging uh, the citizens to do what the government wants. So they close businesses down and then they offer the, the CERB you know, the, the, yep. the temporary chintzy wages, but then you got to pay it back. It's, we have our prime minister saying, we took on the debt, speaking of the government, we took on the debt so you don't have to. Like, <laughs> Which <what>? is so, <laughs> that's, that's, people understand, yeah. Like uh, some people don't understand how absurd that is. It's like, sir, every, every single penny of debt that the state has is our debt because the state has no money in and of itself. It all comes from the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. People have been, had their insurance threatened in order to get them to do what the government wants. We're going to cancel your insurance. If you don't get your trucks out of Ottawa, we're going to cancel your insurance. If you don't close your church down, people have been fined for speaking at protests. People have had their bank accounts frozen. The state wants to control every single aspect of our lives. And if we let them get away with now providing a basic universal state funded uh, salary to anybody that wants it, I mean, essentially now you have absolute control over every dollar. Not only are the things that the state wants to fund absolutely controlled by the state, but now your income itself is controlled by the state. So now the state is controlling your income. It's controlling your expenditures. It's controlling taxation. The whole system falls under the purview of the state's authority. You may have mentioned this already, but is we, in Canada, we have a welfare system. So is there any distinguishing differences between our welfare system as exists and the universal basic income that you're aware of? So I, I did read a few comments of people questioning, like, would the, would the welfare system cease to exist? I think the answer to that is it depends on what, what part of the quote unquote welfare system you're talking about. So some of the welfare system would presumably cease to exist because a lot of people that would be living off of the welfare system would just get this automatic sort of mm -hmm. annual salary. But there may be, when the legislation comes out and, and then the minister takes it and devises all the policies, there might still be things like um, disability insurance or EI or whatnot. By the way, with regard to like EI, I mean, you do pay into it. Right. So it's kind of like an insurance plan, but at the same time, some people abuse it. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily opposed to people pooling money into a big bucket and then drawing from it when they need it because it's their money. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it's when the state controls that sort of thing, it's, it just becomes out of control and you have people that I'm going to work for you, then take a year off. Then I'm going to work for you, then I'm going to take a year off. Then I'm going to work for you, then take a year off. Well, the amount of money that they're sucking out of that bucket is far greater than the amount of money they've ever deposited into it. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So, okay. Well, I know obviously we're seeing the state wants to control so much. And so some real practical steps, what would you recommend people can do to take the use of money and use it biblically? Well, really what we need to do is, um, have a great reset <laughs> of <laughs> a uh, biblical reset, <laughs> a biblical reset of our entire system. But we know that that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we have to think as incrementalists. And what I wanted to do is just give some basic advice for people that um, will help them in the immediate to alleviate, I think, some of the stress and the pressure that people are experiencing as they see the state increasingly take control over. Mm-hmm all economics. The first thing I would do in response to the UBI is I would write and contact your MP and your senators. So use all the political apparatus that we have at our disposal to, um, to speak out against it. But in terms of like your immediate daily needs, obviously we want to make sure that we have our three buckets in place. A biblical model of handling our own funds is, you know, give, spend, save. So we, we don't want to, in a financial pinch, stop giving. You know, we're called to the pattern of tithing and almsgiving and offerings. These are biblical patterns. Uh, obviously, tithing is legislated under the old covenant. It's not legislated under the new, but it's spoken of positively in Matthew's gospel by Jesus. It's practiced prior to the old covenant with Melchizedek and Abraham. So rather than thinking of it as a law, it's spoken of positively. It's a positive biblical pattern for giving. And on top of that, almsgiving, which is directing money primarily to the poor. And then offerings, you know, money that are used for um, projects within the, the believing community. So having your giving bucket in place is really important. Making sure that you're uh, spending your money wisely, that you're prioritizing your expenditures uh, in a way that reflects good stewardship that doesn't presume upon tomorrow, but that reflects a a good, healthy stewardship of of today, having, you know, a written ledger of your expenses and uh, making sure those expenses are are ethical and, and justifiable. And then of course, saving, you know, he who gathers money little by little makes it, sees it grow, the Bible says. So there's this biblical, notion of saving. Um, The righteous man provides an inheritance for his children. So there's this idea of even passing on money to the next generation. These are all part of the responsibilities of a a biblical steward. But in terms of like some short-term things, we're seeing that the system that we're part of, which is very difficult to to, to completely withdraw from, is, is a bit of a scary place when the government can just come in and take money from your bank account because you, or freeze your assets because you uh, contributed to a cause that they don't approve of. I mean, where's that going to lead? There's, there's discussions. It's already happened in Canada, but there's discussions of, of churches quote unquote, losing their tax status, which by the way, isn't losing their tax status. The reason why churches historically don't pay taxes is because we're embassies and our King is Christ and we're on foreign soil, so to speak. So foreign embassies don't pay taxes. That's why churches historically weren't paid, didn't pay taxes. Other religious groups have since benefit from, benefited from that historical reality. So it's not really so much that 
the government wants to remove your tax status as if it's some sort of a gift. They want to tax you because taxation is a claim to authority. So that probably is going to happen sooner than later. Uh, and we're just trusting the Lord will continue to provide and give us wisdom to respond to that. On principle, we're not going to buckle or bow just because someone threatens to take away a church's insurance or to steal their building or to um, charge them taxes. We're not going to do what the pre-World War II German churches did by buckling to the system. So I'm just, that's kind of a bit of a bunny trail. I wanted to just kind of remind people that the system we're in is a dangerous system. But what I, what I would say to people is uh, it's pretty difficult not to use a bank these days mm -hmm. to pay your bills. I would recommend keeping the bare minimum in your bank account or your in the credit union that you're part of. Uh, store your your excess funds elsewhere, either in hard assets or in land or even in another country in uh, vacant land, for example, that doesn't require maintenance. I think people need to seriously reconsider uh, the whole mortgage system because that's where banks are making a lot of their money and you're really tied to that system. So being aggressive in paying off mortgages, having as minimal mortgages as possible, considering um, private mortgages with other believers that may be willing to lend you money uh, are, are things to consider. I think increasingly we're probably going to see uh, micro economies spring up among people who are sort of fed up with being abused by the system and who are fed up with supporting statism, that's probably going to involve bartering. Now, I know there is some legislation in place where the government even wants to try to tax bartering. So if I'm like, hey, Chris, I'll do five hours of painting at your house. You can come over to mine and do five hours of plumbing. And we'll just call it even. Uh, that takes place all the time. But from what, from what I understand, the state would actually want to charge us for that potentially as services rendered, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. So the, the idea of bartering is probably going to become increasingly common among people. It's like, Hey, uh, you cut my grass, I'll babysit your kids mm -hmm. kind of thing. Or, um, you know, I'll, I'll grow the beef. You provide the eggs and, uh, you, you grow the carrots and can the carrots and I'll grow the beans and can the beans. Uh, you fix my car, I'll repair your roof. Mm -hmm. I think those are things that we're probably going to see people participate in. And I think, I think it's wise for godly people to create sort of internal economies where they're, they're helping each other out as extended family members would, you know, I'm going to help my kids out. They're going to help me out. These are the kind of things that we're going to see, I think, increasingly in the future. I also would just encourage Christians to create micro economies. And what I mean by that is when you're going to spend your money, just before you're going to fork out that, that dollar, just ask yourself, am I giving it to the right person? Mm -hmm. You know, within, within a church, for example, think about this. Everyone's getting their hair cut on some sort of a annual, biannual, monthly basis, depending on how long you want your hair to grow. Uh, a lot of people have pets. They require grooming. Um, there's weddings. There's catering that needs to be done for wed weddings. There's photography. There's videography. 
people have repairs. plumbing needs, vehicle needs, oil yep. changes, uh, lawn care, uh, r- services of a realtor. We wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if a group of believers got together and said, "Look." You're the guy that provides the coffee. You're the guy that grows the carrots. You're the person that cuts the hair. You're the person that does the photos. You're the person that does the catering. And we we support one another. Ethnic communities that are newer to Canada do this. Mm-hmm. They tend to live in small villages, villages within larger cities. And I'm not talking about official villages with municipal governments, but they live in close proximity and they bless and encourage each other. Unfortunately, Christians aren't very strategic in their thinking, I've noticed. We're sort of a every man for himself mm-hmm. sort of a people. It's just me and Jesus, and I'll see you on Sunday, but it's really me and Jesus. But to create micro-economies where we're supporting each other really is a wise thing so that there's less of a, a reliance upon the the system, the beast. I mean, I don't know the legalities to this, and I, I can't look into every possible idea I have, but maybe even forming a, a you know a, a bank or a credit union or some sort of a lending agency that has an ethical basis to it last uh, the last several months when the restaurants have been closed to unvaccinated people or coffee shops these create prime opportunities for entrepreneurial people to start businesses uh, you know out of their homes out of their basements and their garages and rented facilities and I think that if if um, if you know the word gets out, there's a lot of income that can be generated uh, among godly people that that is provides opportunities to support and care for one another and not continue to feed the beast, hmm. which is you know the, the growing state, uh, which continues to take and take and take and uh, really kind of abuse the people that God has entrusted to them. Hmm. That's really helpful. Okay, we want to move to some Q&A. Uh, some of our listeners have been waiting several weeks, so thank you for your patience in this. We're getting to the questions. Some of them, the uh, topics might be not quite as relevant as they used to be, but we're doing our best here. Uh, and so today, is th- this first question is super relevant. Um, this this uh, person specifically talking about Bill S-233, okay. um, and they're talking about that there's rumors that this is Trudeau implementing a social credit system, and they just want to know, hey, Pastor Aaron, what's your thoughts on the social credit system? Well, I did, I did do a podcast, I think a couple months back, on the, on the social credit system, and I think that is part of the plan, so I would just maybe refer the, the questioner back to that and... Um, That'll kind of help them to to understand the system and how it sort of ties into some of the other economic challenges or economic the the economic agenda that we're seeing increasingly out in out in the public. Mm-hmm. Basically, you you have to prove yourself and earn brownie points with the state to be part of the system, right? Yep. And we've seen that already. So to refer to that podcast and a lot of this information, like World Economic Forum stuff, you can just read it for yourself online from these sites. It's not a conspiracy when it's from the actual source, right? So, um, okay. Another question here. Uh, this one's pertaining to the question of authority. We've mentioned Romans 13 quite a few times um, in the last couple of years. But this this listener is asking about how authority fits in with 1 Peter 2 verses 13 to 25. 
Uh, and so, and our current circumstances, specifically, they were referring to COVID-19 um, and yeah. obedience. And so maybe you want to read that passage or reference it, uh, sections of it for this listener as we ask about that question. Well, um, first Peter chapter two verses, uh, 13, um, down to 17 is sort of Peter's equivalent of Paul's Romans 13. So it's, it's similar wording. And that is that we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities because God has put them in place. And it's a good thing to, um, you know, live under their authority and to obey them. So that's great. I, we, we believe that. We believe that's God's plan. But it would be wrong then to assume that what's taking place in verses 18 and following is the same conversation. In verses 18 and following, it's giving instruction to people who are enslaved, who are in impossible circumstances that they can't extricate themselves from under masters to live in a way that, you know, honors and to be subject to and to give respect and to be gracious towards your masters. So it's not, there's this notion in scripture that in a broken world, there's law. So first of all, there's laws that are ideals. There's laws and principles God has put in place that work in an ideal setting. But then God also recognized that we live within a broken system. So there's instruction given in the word of God to accommodate the realities of life within a broken system. So an example of that is over, over in 1 Corinthians 7, where the unbelieving spouse, if a believing spouse is married to an unbelieving spouse, and it's kind of an impossible situation, what do you do? Ideally, we know that Christ is the center of the marriage, but if one person doesn't even know Christ, it says there, you need to pray for them. You need to stay within that marriage. If they want to depart, let them depart. So that's not an instruction a series of instructions of first Corinthians seven, addressing the ideal marriage where the husband's a believer and the wife's a believer. It's, it's a, it's a marriage that's not ideal where one's a believer and one isn't. And in the same way, especially in the ancient world, for various reasons, people would find themselves in slave master relationships. It's not the ideal, but people in those relationships that can't get out of them need some instructions as to how to respond. And it's not giving a two thumbs up, to slavery any more than it's giving a two thumbs up to people that are unequally yoked, but it's giving people instruction for how to respond. So if you're in an impossible situation where you're living uh, under some sort of tyrannical um, rule, you know, you do need to endure. You do need to take the moral high ground. You do need to continue to, to conduct yourself ethically. You do need to continue to submit as much as you can. And you also need a redemptive view of suffering. It says in, um, let me see here if I can uh, read this. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of a Lord. So if a slave is punished because he's done something stupid, you don't get brownie points for that. But if you're punished for righteousness sake, you get brownie points for that, so to speak, in the mind of, in the sight of God. It's not saying that you should look for those kinds of relationships, that you should put yourself in a place where you're, you're being beaten or that you should 
be silent so that more and more people are enslaved by tyrants as if somehow that's the ideal. That's foolishness. We speak out against enslavement. We speak out against tyranny. We speak out against wickedness. But if you're in a situation that you cannot extricate yourself from, there's principles there for how you should respond to that. So we need to sort of have two ways of thinking about this. The one is what's the ideal? Romans 13, the first part of um, this passage we're looking at in First Peter chapter 2, creates the ideal. This is, this is the responsibility of the state. This is their basic job description. This is how we should respond to them. But then a discussion about the, the real, which is, yeah, sometimes we are living under tyrants, either as individuals in a slave-master relationship or even under a tyrant king. And then we have to learn to live within that system and to still grow in spite of it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it's almost like this question is, um, or maybe what some of the people have applied this passage is thinking that we are already living in that tyrannical state, not realizing we're progressing more and more to it. And you can actually hopefully halt our progress into that. Sure. Well, we are and we aren't. I mean, we're living under tyranny and we still have certain liberties and freedoms. So let's just say if we were to quantify it, and I'm not suggesting that this is the ratio, but let's just say it's 50% tyranny and 50% liberty right now. Well, it would be foolish to say, you know what? It's already 50% tyranny. Why not let's let it go to 100? Mm -hmm. You know, we just won't say anything. We won't push back. We won't speak out. We'll just you know, let it kind of all fall apart. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're always fighting for the ideal. You're always fighting for liberty under God. But if you're not in a situation where that's afforded to you, then you have to respond accordingly. Uh, Joseph had to make adjustments when he was living in Egypt. The Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to make adjustments and they're living in Babylon and the unbelieving spouse has, or the believing spouse has to make adjustments in 1 Corinthians 7. The slave has to make adjustments in Philemon or in 1 Peter 2. But that's not the ideal. We're always, we, we're always striving for a culture that's actually under God and functioning in a way that's honoring the Lord. Mm -hmm. This next question is, uh, it's a lengthy one, so I, I'll tr do my best to summarize it. Okay. But essentially, I, what I'm capturing from it is... Uh, okay, let's talk about the trucker convoy or the various issues we've talked about, standing up for justice, bringing reform to our world. Uh, and the listener is saying this, a common call they see in the New Testament is for us as followers of Christ to walk humbly, to deny ourselves, to walk the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, references to the Sermon on the Mount there, to love our enemies when being treated with injustice. And through these actions, God would build his kingdom. So why are we now being called to rise up, resist, fight for our physical liberties, which are really bound to this world. Um, and then tied to that, why didn't Jesus do that? Why didn't he fight for liberation from the Romans to make it easier for the, for the message to get out? So that's the first part of the question. Okay. So first of all, when we're called to be slapped on the cheek, carry the burden, the extra mile, that's not building the kingdom. That is living out certain kingdom values, which will be present in the internal kingdom within the kingdom of this world. But this idea that Jesus wasn't political is inaccurate. Jesus was incredibly political. If you understand politics properly, politics essentially boils down to the question, who's in charge? 
Jesus is incredibly the most political figure that ever lived when he declares is declared to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's a direct offense and affront to the human kings that wanted to usurp the authority of God and live beyond the boundaries of the authority that God had given to them. This actually is the fundamental reason why Jesus was put on a cross because he offended the political structures, the, the, the Pilots, the Herods, the Caesars of his day, who were the, the Jewish leaders who were offended at his claim to be the king of the Jews. The irony of it all is when he's put on the cross, he still gets the sign put up over his head, mm-hmm. right? That he's the yeah, king, of, king the of the Jews. So even in his crucifixion, there's still this proclamation that he is the king of the Jews. So if, if politics for you boils down to vaccine mandates or speed limits or whether roads get paved with concrete as opposed to asphalt, that's a very reductionistic view of what politics are. Politics fundamentally is about authority and power. Who has the authority to make decisions on behalf of other people? And from a Christian perspective, we would say, ultimately, Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and God's laws and God's words and God's principles must form the basis for civil government and structure and civilization itself. And God delegates authority, just like the, the, the great shepherd of the church delegates authority to under shepherds like you and me, pastors. So the king of kings and the Lord of lords delegates authority to kings and prime ministers and premiers and mayors. And these individuals have a delegated limited sphere of authority to wield the sword on God's behalf. When they step outside of that and they become tyrants, they're dishonoring the Lord, but they're also abusing people. So because that happens in a sin-sick world, in the scriptures, we both have the ideal, Jesus' radical proclamation that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the cry of the believer in the Lord's prayer that his kingdom would come to this world as it is in heaven, meaning that the rightful rule and lordship of Christ over all of creation be recognized in the here and now, but at the same time, we have this theology of accommodation. God knows that we live in a sin-sick world. So you get slapped in the cheek, you turn the other cheek. You're asked to carry the, the Roman soldier's luggage a mile, which by law you were required to do. You carried a second, you carried a second mile. But what, where I think people um, conflate the two is they think, okay, because the scriptures are teaching us how to live in a sin-sick world, that that means we should just be content with living in a sin-sick world and waiting for heaven. Hmm. And that's not biblical. In fact, it's a false, a truncated gospel to say that the gospel is just about getting out of, getting off of the planet and getting to heaven, Hmm. which is, we're hearing people say this, okay, guys, you know, we've been fighting over the COVID stuff for a long time. Let's just get back to preaching the gospel. What do you mean by that? Do you mean this, the, the conversion message of the gospel? Well, we've been preaching that the whole time. But the gospel is not just about you, Chris Eelman, mm-hmm. getting saved so you can get to heaven. Mm-hmm. That actually, If that's all the gospel is, it's kind of a selfish gospel, actually. Mm-hmm. Just about you, man. Mm-hmm. The world all revolves around you. Jesus exists just to get you to heaven. The, 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 the gospel as a whole is, a, is this whole message of the lordship of Christ, the kingdom of God, the, 
the the perfection and holiness of God contrasted with the wickedness of man and God's redemptive plan to not only bring about our salvation, but also to bring about the rightful recognition of his rule over creation. Mm -hmm. The mission of God is the glory of God. And as we stand for, uh, we stand against oppression and tyranny, we speak to quote unquote politics what we're actually doing properly, if we properly understand politics, is whenever we engage in political issues, we're actually engaging in a declaration of the absolute lordship of Christ over every principality, every power, every authority, and every life on planet Earth. Mm. So in that respect, Jesus was the most political figure that ever lived. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, tied to this, the next question is basically, okay, we're, we're standing up against injustice by hitching our wagon, or maybe we didn't, but maybe it was perceived hitching your wagon to the truckers. Are we unequally yoked? And I've gotten this question in a variety of formats, a lot of ways, you know, uh, some of the trucker convoy leaders um, were maybe not so savory characters or whatever else are we unequally yoked to be working with them and maybe we could even extend that to is it okay to fight abortion alongside catholics uh, maybe you could just expand that a bit well we're not unequally yoked to them i mean if 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 being unequally yoked to unbelievers means you're standing in a picket line with them or you're mutually fighting against abortion, does that mean that armies should only be Christian armies? And if a Christian fights in an army with a non-Christian, that they are unequally yoked? Or if a Christian police officer is employed by the Windsor Police Services and there's other unbelievers on the Windsor Police Services that every time you respond to a call to arrest a criminal that you're unequally yoked? Or if you run for office and your party is speaking out against unjust taxation that you're, you know, unequally yoked because you're in a party where there's unbelievers. No, I mean, we, the, the yoking passage in, uh, I think it's second Corinthians seven, if I remember maybe around verse 14 is, um, or it could be chapter six, but it's right around the middle of the book. There is speaking about people involved in covenantal relationships with lost people. So the application of that could be obviously marriage, um, business partnerships, these sorts of things. Um, but justice is justice is justice and injustice is injustice is, or injustice is injustice is injustice. So it's perfectly acceptable when we're speaking out against basic violations of God's law, human, human, um, human rights, as we often call them to stand shoulder to shoulder with people that are trying to do the same thing. There's the, by the way, you got to ask yourself the question, which way is the influence going? Mm-hmm. The influence, I can guarantee you this in Ottawa without question went from the Christians to the non-Christians, not the other way around. There's no Christians that went up there and came away as ungodly anarchists. We as Christians who were part of that had umpteen dozen opportunities to share the gospel and influence people for the kingdom and even to see baptisms in hotels. So the influence, it was an evangelistic opportunity. It was to go into the courtyards and stand with people who are victimized. Mm-hmm. And just like the people, uh, you know, that Jesus interacted with 
went into leper colonies, went into places where there's crowds of unbelievers and, and blessed them and affected them. Of course, you're going to get unsavory characters, but you know what? Sometimes I think Christians spend too much time worried about their own um, public reputation. You know, there's, there's a lot of pressure within the church to conform to unwritten rules. There's a lot of debates. So what songs do you sing in your church? Oh, they might be good songs, but the, uh, the publisher, you know, did you hear about that guy that wrote that song? You better delete that from your repertoire. You better throw that book out of your library because the person, when they wrote it, they were professing faith, but now they've, they don't profess faith in Christ. Um, why would you vote for that political party? Did you know that the, the leader of the party has been, you know, married twice or look folks, um, in a broken world, we're, we're obviously about the work of Christ's kingdom, but we're often interacting with people who are less than adequate, which we all are, or at least once were as well. And we're standing up against broad issues of injustice. Again, if you have a problem with uh, protesting alongside people that may have signs that aren't using the nicest language or protesting with people when you hear that a, f a few of them might have some crazy ideas, then to be consistent, you should never participate in any political system, any armed force, any policing service that is um, seeking to bring about change and justice where there's, questionable characters involved. We could apply this to the medical field. If you're a physician, you're a nurse, you go to the hospital to help people that are experiencing issues. Do you look around and say, you know what? I don't think I can participate in this. I don't think I can help people anymore because there's a few atheists on staff. Mm -hmm. There's a few people that have foul mouths in the operating room. So, you know, we're right in the middle of a heart transplant. I'm out of here. You just swore. Like we, we need to be a little more broad shouldered and a little more realistic. Mm -hmm. And it brings to mind a lot of these questions. It brings to mind this, this notion of being a missionary, this, this notion of you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly value. As someone once said, you're, you're going to be building partnerships, relationships with people that are less than ideal, but you're doing it for a common cause. And if they will join you in your cause for a period of time, as long as you're not being compromised, defaming the name of Christ, there's great opportunities for you to bring influence. We need more, sadly, we wouldn't have had a trucker's convoy if more Christians had stood up against the injustice far earlier. It should have been mm -hmm. a pastor's convoy. Mm -hmm. It should have been a Christian's convoy. But the reason why the, the, the truckers got so much airtime is because there was so many of them, mm -hmm. even though, <laughs> not to be selfish, but they were about a year and a half behind guys like me <laughs> that were yeah. speaking out a long time ago on principle, not because we lost our job. So I think there's, a, there's a, an opportunity for some co-belligerence here mm -hmm. and also an opportunity for some um, gospel ministry when we, when we associate with groups like this. Yep. That's good. And by the way, I'll just say one more thing. I wouldn't be surprised that up to half, just this is just anecdotally based upon my conversations with truckers in Ottawa. I wouldn't be surprised that up to half of the truckers 
in Ottawa were actually Christians. Hmm. And that will be a, a fuel for another person's fire on the left. <laughs> so, um, okay. One final question related to the trucker convoy. I know some people were feeling like, okay, they're in support of what was going on in Ottawa, but when it came to blocking a bridge with international travel or international, um, commerce and whatnot trade, um, they were finding it, okay, that's blatantly illegal. They figured it's hurting third parties. Like what line do we draw where, okay, yes, this is injustice. It needs to be stopped, but do the ends justify the means? That kind of thinking. Yeah. Well, um, let me just give three or four thoughts on that. First of all, it's not true to use the ambassador bridge, for example, that it was fully blocked for longer than maybe a few hours at a time. And the people that were there were more than willing to move their vehicles out of the way. They moved them several times. They were offering to have conversations with the um, bridge owners and with the politicians and police. And that essentially never happened. Mm -hmm. So it's not really uh, correct to say that, to, to pick, picture the scenario there as them just obstinately blocking all lanes. No one gets on, no one gets off. That's the end of the story. We're unreasonable people. That's just not true. But if, if that was true, let me give it an analogy. The, when I asked some of the folks there, why basically, why'd you pick the bridge? It's because of the symbolism of symbolism of it. In fact, it's more than symbolic. So for example, if let's say the government passed a law and they said, no, unvaccinated people are allowed in grocery stores. And let's say that you go with their numbers and 80% of the people are vaccinated. So 80% of the population could go into the grocery stores and the other 20% has to starve. Would, would the questioner consider it unjust if the 20% came and blocked access to everyone to the grocery store and said, look, if you're not going to allow us 20% in, we're going to block it. So the 80% can't get in. Nobody can get in. If we can't get in, you can't get in. Who's the pressure on now to bring the political change? It's on the 80% to stop walking in out of the grocery store and overlooking someone who's being treated unjustly. The pressure's on you now. If you want in the grocery store, join our cause. Together, 100% of the people should be opposing any law that bans people from the grocery store. Now that's might where that analogy is maybe slightly different is groceries are a more immediate like mm -hmm. need. You have to consume X number of calories per day to survive, but it's actually an apt analogy because a lot of these folks that are at, were at the borders blocking them are people that have actually been banned from the workforce effectively. Mm -hmm. They've been truckers all their lives and they work for companies or own companies where they take a product from Ontario to Michigan mm -hmm. or from Alberta down to wherever, mm -hmm. Arizona. And they've been told you cannot cross the border. You've been pushed out of the workforce. So why are they there? They're there at the bridge to say, look, if you can't cross, we can't cross. Mm -hmm. And what the sad part of all that is, is that no elected official ever on any, at any point in time came out and had a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So, could it be called illegal? Yeah. But what was happening to them was unjust. And what I think should have happened is every single citizen in this entire country 
should have gone down there and supported them, the problem would have been over in an hour. Mm -hmm. That would have been the end of it. The injustice would have ceased. But this is one of those situations where you have the armchair observer looking through their television set at someone parked at the foot of the bridge or at the Coots border in Alberta. And as they're eating their bag of chips, you know, and chugging down their second beer saying, what's going on with these people? You need to enter into the plight Mm -hmm. of the protesters and to understand the injustice that's being done against them. And sometimes people have to resort. There's obviously a gradation of uh, acts that a person participates in. You know, you start off having conversations, making phone calls, writing letters, petitioning, calling lawyers. But the reason why we had these convoys, which cost the participants thousands and thousands of dollars in fuel and, you know, Mm -hmm. expenses to be there. The reason why we had these is because after almost two years, they're still not being listened to. Mm -hmm. So you should expect to see an escalation of, you know, historically, when oppression continued to be foisted on people, you end up with civil war. You end up with terrorist acts. Nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. So you have an escalation and are the third parties going to quote unquote suffer from that temporarily? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the system is the problem, not the protesters. Mm -hmm. The third parties could have just as easily advocated for the protesters because a lot of them have a lot of money and power and said, look, enough's enough. We're standing with them. Mm -hmm. We're going to send a few of our trucks down. Smarten up. Mm-hmm. Or we're not going to ship out our product for 24 hours until you smarten up. Mm-hmm. So you have to basically decide who's the just party and who's the unjust party and side with them on principle. And if everybody, it didn't happen, obviously, yeah. but if everyone did that, then um, it would have been resolved. By the way, I've said this before. I'll just say it again just to remind people, all of that policing, all the money spent shipping in buses and equipment, that could all been resolved with a conversation or two between some elected officials and some of the key people there. I, I would, I would go as far as to say, because I talked to a lot of the people at the one crossing and I kind of got a sense of where their heart is. I would almost go as far as to say, I could, I could guarantee Hmm. that the problem was resolvable with conversations rather than with might. Yep. And that would have saved everybody a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of headache and a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, tyrants that refuse to have conversations and buckle and instead throw stones, even calling people mentally unstable, they're just inf- they're just creating more problems for themselves, which is completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Before we go, maybe a sentence or two uh, in terms of news updates. I know the there was a court um, charter challenge. And there were some results this week um, and maybe just your thoughts about the legal system. And maybe that's more than a yeah, sentence so there was, or two. Yeah, there was a charter challenge that was, um, I mean, different people were invited to be part of that, but it ended up being, they, they picked the church of God and Trinity Bible chapel in Waterloo. And they were the kind of the, uh, the names on the charter challenge. And effectively, as I understand it, the judge said, yeah, your charter rights were violated, but, for good reason. So you essentially lost the charter challenge. Now I will say I felt, so I'm, I'm pragmatic enough to understand that that needed to happen, that charter challenge. 
but on principle, I I feel I feel a little bit uncomfortable that it ever did happen because my view when I, I I'm interested in the law, civil law, but and I, and I don't want to posture myself as some sort of a anarchist or opposed to the law, but in all honesty, I just I don't really care that much what the civil law says about our efforts because I know that and I believe that the state just simply doesn't have the authority to decide whether churches can open or close. So when you go into a court system like that and you're like, okay, we're going to challenge the 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 law, we're going to challenge um, using the charter, or we're going to try to use the mm-hmm. charter to prove that we have the right to remain open. In my view, you're actually appealing to the wrong source. Hmm. So pragmatically, I understand it needed to happen, but you're appealing to the wrong source. Whether they rule yay or nay uh, doesn't change my view that the church has the right to minister to its own people and to gather for worship, whether the state says they can or cannot, or what the reasons for that might be. They just don't have it. So I'm never going to cede that authority to any court. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, I understand that a judge or a person in law might hear this and think, man, this guy has no respect for the courts. No, I have, I have respect for the courts, but I think the courts under God are limited in their authority. And this is beyond their God given mm-hmm. authority. This is the problem with our charter. When the charter says, here's your rights, but then we can demonstrate, if we can demonstrably justify, we can suspend them. My response is that's bad law mm-hmm. because there are certain rights that are unalienable rights that are given to us by God that are inherent rights that no court of jurisdiction, no matter what they have written down, has the authority to suspend or to delete. Mm-hmm. We can speak of many examples in history where Christian people were confronted with laws that did not reflect natural law or divine law. So, But that's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of the circumstance. That's sort of how how it came down. I don't know. I haven't spoken with the folks involved recently. I did speak to one of the lawyers that was involved in the process, but I haven't spoken to them recently. So I don't know if there's like a next step to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does set a disturbing precedent Mm -hmm. for our country. I think the judge and those that were involved in making that decision made the best decision that they could make based upon their understanding of law. But I think it's actually deficient. Mm -hmm. It's a deficient understanding of law. And this is why in our country, uh, I hear a lot of people going around thinking, we're going to win this in court or we're going to win that in court. You're going to beat this. You're going to beat that. And I'm like, no, I I don't actually think so. I'm not surprised by this outcome because I think our laws have been shown to be inadequate Mm -hmm. in all of this. So, again, I'm pragmatic enough that if there's legal arguments we can use to win, okay, let's do it. But please, please, please don't be making your decisions assuming that the law is necessarily on your side or provides you with the kind of defense. I've heard this for two years. Oh, the tickets are all going to be thrown out. They're going to be thrown out. They're going to be thrown out. Well, in all honesty, you have a lot more um, confidence in the Canadian legal system than I do. Because when I look at the Canadian legal system, I see a lot of positives, 
but I also see a lot that's actually contrary to God's law. Mm -hmm. For example, we don't even have a law in our country regulating or banning abortion. So I'm sorry, but that's the number one evil in our country, not lockdowns. If you have a country that can't even protect little babies inside of their mummies, you have a corrupt legal system, mm -hmm. period. So appealing to the Bill of Rights, appealing to the Charter, trying to find this loophole, that loophole, this piece of legislation, this piece of case law, this statute, this legislation to somehow magically win all this. Well, there's going to be some victories along the way, but we need to think long-term. This is why I've said, how many times have I said it? Mm -hmm. it even if we're, we're really deliberate, we're in for a hundred year fight where, which will go beyond our lifetimes where we need to rebuild these institutions from the ground up. And there needs to be a serious relooking at our laws. Some of these laws that have been passed recently need to be overturned. Obviously like the made laws, the assisted suicide laws, the bill C4, they need to be overturned. They're not just mm -hmm. laws. They're ungodly laws and there needs to be a spiritual uh, revival that includes a revival and refreshment of the judicial system. I know this sounds overwhelming, <laughs> but it is the long-term solution to the plight and problem. Each of us can kind of play a role in that. That's great. Well, thank you to each of our listeners for tuning in. Reminder that you can hear us on the CGXC radio Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can also hear us on the fight, laugh, feast app, uh, download that in the store go on there and you'll see the fight left feast canada you can check out our podcast there and make sure that you get the notifications make sure that you follow us on social media all the ch different channels that are available including some of the, the non-mainstream ones that are coming up so that you can continue to hear this and thank you to aaron for the podcast for the time you've invested into it and again if you have questions email them to ask that's ask at harvestwindsor.ca and tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roddick.